Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Visit boingboing.net for more great podcasts and visit youarenotsosmart.com for more information about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode 11. Too. Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, you look it. A man's honor has just been insulted. It's you 1881, and we're in Tombstone, Arizona. Look, a bar Johnny where Ringo. things like this often happen, Dead according to the movies. The and two men are standing across from each other. One obviously what drunk say, behind the faro hey. table, and the other no. with his hand That's on true. his pistol's grip. I don't know. There's just something about him. Something around the house. I don't know. Reminds me of... me. No. I'm sure of it. I hate him. He's drunk. And Vino Veritas. Ajik Wurajis. Creda Judea Sotella non ego. Juventus Stultorum. Magister. In pace requiescata. Come on, boys. We don't want any trouble in here, not in any language. That's Latin, doll. Evidently, Mr. Ringo's an educated man. Now I really hate him. What's it, Johnny? So Johnny Ringo, played by Michael Bean, whips out his pistol and starts flipping it around in the air and rolls artistically, stylistically. And then Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer, takes out his drinking cup and flips it around and shows, okay, I guess maybe drinking is what I do best. In this wonderful scene from Tombstone, the 1993 Western that is just so incredibly quotable. Even the Latin is super quotable. And if you were a big old nerd like me in 1993, then you learned the Latin so you could say it back and forth with your friends. And, uh, well, I don't know if I learned it correctly, but I today can go over to latindiscussion.com and they break it down like so. And vino Wyatt Earp had just defended Doc Holliday saying he was drunk. And then Doc Holliday says, in wine there is truth. So, yeah, I meant what I said. Ajikwaragis. Ringo responds with do what you do, revealing that he understands Latin, 
and also re-insulting Doc Holliday by saying, since you're a drunkard, keep on drinking. So this is Doc Holliday upping the intellectual ante by revealing that he understands an old Latin phrase, let the Jew appella believe it, not I, which according to latindiscussion.com meant basically tell it to someone else, not I. So Johnny Ringo matches his wit and says, yes, I know another phrase from Latin that was quite common in the day, and that is youth is the teacher of fools. And that's when Doc Holliday says, rest in peace. Actually, he says it backwards. So he says, in peace, you will rest, turning rest in peace into a threat. Now, the real Doc Holliday was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1851. And it's not unreasonable to assume that a man of his stature coming from where he did would not take kindly to an insult on his honor. The Southern culture of honor is a real thing. It is something that psychologists have been studying for years. There are books on the topic. There are really interesting papers about the topic. And that is part of a grander idea in social psychology that says where you live changes the way you think and feel. Your perceptions and your behaviors from situation to situation differ if you're from one region versus if you're from another region. And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a different topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie. And I have received some emails from people who say they don't listen to the cookie segment anymore because they listened to the very first episode and they didn't like my chewing sounds. And I'm here to tell you, you don't hear chewing sounds anymore. The cookie segment will enrich your soul. Don't skip it. And also... If you send in a recipe for the cookie that I eat in every episode, you get a free, fantastic signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb, or if you want, my first book, You Are Not So Smart. On this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we're going to talk about the psychology of culture, the psychology of indoctrination into a cultural set of norms, a cultural set of ideas. And we're going to talk about that with Hazel Marcus, who is one of the leading researchers into cultural cognition. And this episode will be a little shorter than the normal You Are Not So Smart episode because my interview with her runs very short because we were at a get-together after a conference. And that'll all make a lot more sense in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about some of the research into cultural cognition. In 1996, Cohen, Nisbet, Baldel, and Schwartz published a paper titled Insult, Aggression, and the Southern Culture of Honor an experimental ethnography. And the paper would later appear in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, and on Radiolab and many other places. It's fascinating research, and here's how one of the studies went down. The experimenters gathered together students at the University of Michigan who had been born and raised or lived six years or more in either the northern or in the southern United States. The students believed they were taking part in research into judgment and performance, and they arrived, they greeted the experimenters, they filled out a questionnaire, and then they had saliva and blood samples drawn. Next, each was asked to deliver the questionnaire to a table at the end of a hallway, and in that hallway, an actor waited, pretending to be messing around with a filing cabinet. So the subjects would uh, walk down this narrow hallway, 
and they would have to squeeze by this actor. But when the subject began to pass, the actor would bump into each one and then called the subject during each run of this experiment an asshole before they then walked into another room and the subject had to go and deliver the paper to the researchers. So after that, another sample of saliva and blood was taken and the subjects had to then finish this story. It had only been about 20 minutes since they had arrived at the party when Jill pulled Steve aside, obviously bothered about something. What's wrong? asked Steve. It's Larry. I mean, he knows that you and I are engaged, but he's already made two passes at me tonight. Jill walked back into the crowd and Steve decided to keep his eye on Larry. Sure enough, within five minutes, Larry was reaching over and trying to kiss Jill. What happens next? And that's what they asked the subjects to figure out, to write down in essay form, what's going to happen next in the story from your point of view? What do you predict would happen next if you were there? So after the incident, when they were bumped and the blood samples were compared to the blood samples before they were bumped, the blood samples of Southerners showed much higher levels of testosterone and stress hormones than did Northerners or Southerners in a control group that wasn't insulted. And the Southerners' answers to the story were much more likely to involve violence after that insult than were the answers of Northerners. And in general, the Northerners just shrugged off that insult. But the Southerners, when after they were insulted for nothing, they, did, they couldn't laugh at that. that. That enraged them. Horrible, burning anger flowed through their veins. F fire was in their eyes. Hot embers in their mouth. Oh, how dare that person call me an asshole for no reason. And the researchers said uh, at the end of the uh, study, their general discussion said, the findings of the present experiments are consistent with survey and archival data showing that the South possesses a version of the culture of honor. Southerners and Northerners who were not insulted were indistinguishable on most measures, with the exception that control Southerners appeared somewhat more polite and deferential on behavioral measures than did control Northerners. However, insult dramatically changed this picture. So like I said, there have been books written about this. There's a lot of uh, research into this topic. And the general idea is that people in the American South, especially the Deep South, are very polite and cordial and hospitable because whenever people are insulted or they feel like their honor is at stake, it's, it's something worthy of violence. It's, uh, you know, them's fighting words, man. Sort of a, a tit for tat thing is always, uh, looming where, uh, intense retribution is possible. If you wrong someone, even if you wrong someone just with words. Now, why are Southerners more likely to get angry and violent over insults or perceived slights to their honor? Well, no one really knows. So there are several lines of speculation. The most popular being that much of the Southern population descended from agricultural societies and sheep herders before them. And people whose livelihoods depend on the well-being of livestock tend to be very retaliatory toward threats to their possessions, land, animals, family, and so on. And that's true around the world. And is that the reason why? Well, maybe, but the evidence is still clear. Where you live changes the way you think. The state in which you are raised literally affects the state of your mind for the rest of your life. 
So that is what we're going to talk about briefly with our guest today, Hazel Marcus, who is a professor at Stanford University, who is really one of the like leading researchers, one of the people who put the idea of cultural psychology on the map. And she studies how culture changes the way you think and behave. She studies the psychology that is the underpinning of our culture and how our culture then turns back around and influences our psychology. We spoke after a conference called Being Human in San Francisco, and it's a little noisy, so the interview is going to be a little bit noisy. And uh, she's just so fantastic. I plan to have her back on the podcast in the future for one of the longer interviews when we can explore a topic similar to this in much more uh, depth. But until then, here's Hazel Rose Marcus. you what you what you um what, just give some background into your area of expertise and what you talked about today okay i'm a i'm a social psychologist so that means i'm very concerned about how other people are a major source of of our own behavior and within that what i'm focused on particularly these days are the way are those big social categories that are important to us whether they're region of origin whether we're from the east or the west or within the u.s whether we're from the south of the U.S. or the north of the U.S. or the east coast or the west coast or we're men or women or black or white or Catholic or Jews, those big categories that really organize our lives, social class categories, working class or middle class, they, they, they're, they're extremely um, important. They don't have to be important. But because our world is organized by those categories and we live in that world, then we are seen through those categories by others and we see ourselves through those categories. So it's very important that they aren't natural. They're not inevitable. We could organize society another way, but in fact, we haven't. And so since we haven't yet, those categories are making a difference for us. And each of them are associated with their own ideas about the right way to be a person, the right way to be a self. So what was the... You know, in absence of culture, you know, what would we, what would happen to us? What, what is it? What we, purpose we, does it serve? We, we cease to exist. We, we can't be. My, my undergraduates always, they don't like this message that they, that they're sort of a particular person. They want to, you know, they want to wait and decide what kind of person they want to be. But in fact, from the minute you enter the world, before you enter the world, in the womb, as you are being conditioned by, by your various cultures. So you, from, you, you have to, walk a certain way, sit a certain way, eat a certain way, all of these things are, and we, we know something about this and we have for a long time, in order to become a mature and therefore reproducing member of your group, you have to do it in some specific way. You can't be neutral. And it's not just how you eat, walk, dress, worship, you know, this kind of thing we often think of as culture. It's how you think, how you feel. How, what motivates you? You said it was like uh, it's like the water that we swim it's in. It's like the water that, that we swim. Like, well, we say you know it's like the the water to the fish. You, you don't notice it, especially we're all when we're all of a similar. Say for example, here on the west coast in San Francisco, we're all sort of. Oh well, okay, yeah. Well, you must real you must know what I'm talking about, right? It's very interesting. You must know because this world, and we've done a lot of on regional differences because um, people don't recognize that there are these regional differences, and you you think and 
lots of um, big uh, um, organizations imagine they can just take an employee out of Boston and dump her in Atlanta, dump her in San Francisco. And she'll just be herself, her her independent, integrated, consistent self. But because we are so much um, interdependent with others, we depend on others to make us up who we are. You get there. Not only is the blue plate special, not the blue plate special. It's just those people. They're just from my own experience, uh, vegan or their vegan deep meals uh, at lunch, I was like, that would never happen in my hometown. Uh, everyone's hand went up when they said, "Do you meditate?" I was like, if this was at home, not one hand. Not would one go hand up. would go up. No, it's just, it's just amazing. My my nephew just moved from Berkeley to Atlanta, to, yeah. and he, he, you know. It's so different. He can't, uh, he, he, and as a topic of conversation, like uh, I think every conversation I've had today, that was the first 15 minutes, was trying to get oriented within the other, within the conversation to, okay, what is it like where you're at? What, it, what do you think about this place? See, it's because where you're from, when someone said that today, that roots you, that gives you a perspective, that gives you um, your your yourself, and you, you can move. I mean, you can come to San Francisco and get a San Francisco self, and you will. Eventually, you know, you won't, you won't lose that 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 that's that sure. southern self. Um, what, about, what do you think about um, advents in uh, technology, uh, cyberspace in general? I know in, in psychology, uh, Tim, back in Timothy Leary's day, it was all the rage to say that this is going to change everything about the self, and we're all connected, and we our culture is absorbed by the internet. What what is the current thinking in all that? Well, um, people are divided. Of course, it does give you an opportunity to. To um, be in contact with with images, with ideas, with with practices, with ways of being that that it was much more difficult to have contact with before. But if you actually look at what people do, you know they're very selective in what they um, expose themselves to on the internet. So I'm not really sure it's broadening people in the way that we would hope, because or at least a lot more slowly. I think more slowly, and I also think. Um, I know, you know, if I if focus on the downsides, the more we spend on with our with our our products, with our instruments, the l less time we spend in this face-to-face um, -face interaction. In fact, there was a study last week um, that showed that m more time online is correlated negatively with the ability to decode nonverbal behavior. So you can imagine that, right? If I'm spending less time paying attention, you know, looking at your face, looking at your hands, eyes, because I'm... So there is weight to that argument then. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people like to discount that. There's growing weight. And I think it makes sense, you know, anything you do, it, there's never going to be anything that's an unalloyed good. There's nothing that's an unalloyed good. Mm -hmm. you know, right, independence okay. isn't unalloyed. It's, the West is great. Freedom, equality, right. individual dignity, you know, everything. But, you know, if we're going in a totally libertarian direction, which is, I see happening a lot yeah. here, um, with where many people think it's all about themselves and you know, with little regard for society, that's, that's going to be a problem. Just as if there's no attention to being an independent individual. Um, if, we, if we have time, I, would love, I hope we have time, uh, could you um, tell my audience about your study in um, purchasing a car? Okay. Just, just right. the whole story is so great. Well, uh, we've been looking at um, differences um, within the U.S. by social class. and. Um, it tends to be that if you are middle class, and we um, identify that by um, having a college education or more, as opposed to working class, less than a college education, um, you tend to have 
a different sense of what's the right way to be a self. And if you um, have less than a college education, you probably have a job in which you're not the boss, so you don't have that much control or autonomy. And it's very important um, with jobs like that that you do what you're supposed to do. You have to be responsive to other people to do the job right. You don't have a lot of choice yourself. You're paying attention to others and what they do, and and you're likely to be connected and um, pay attention to others and and um, and uh, notice your relationships. If you're college educated, you may have a job where you have more autonomy in your life. You may have moved away to go to college. You're more likely to be quite um, independent, uh, and you choose your relationships if you move and go to college. If you if you've stayed where you've grown up, almost everyone you are in contact with is someone who's known you since you were a little kid. They knew you when they know you now. Um, they have a certain uh, uh, you have to adjust to their view of you. So this has a, uh, many behavioral consequences and one way we looked at this is looking at the whole domain of choice. Choice is very important but it's most important it turns out for people in middle class contexts. Uh, one way we studied that is to have people imagine a scenario where they do a lot of research for a new car. They look it all up, they figure you know what's the car they want, they finally go out and get it and they're proud. They drive over and show it to their friend. The next day they find out that that friend went out and bought exactly the same car. And so we pose this scenario to people and then we ask, how does it make you feel? And we found two completely different sets of responses. Among the middle class respondents, those with the college education, they felt like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe he did that. He spoiled my whole point of differentiation. He spoiled my uniqueness. I wanted to have this car and be something special that identified me talked to the working class participants and they said that is so cool I would I would love it if my buddy got a car like me we could start one of those car clubs and it was just a sense that you didn't feel um, put upon you didn't feel like somebody um, uh, uh, violated your boundaries you felt good in fact you felt kind of validated your decision in some way too Right, you felt an interdependent self, and we followed that up with a lot of other studies. So, when we we asked working class and middle class to do some task force in the laboratory, and then when they were done, we said, "Oh, thanks for doing that, and um, as a uh, thanks, you can have a gift of a pen." we have here. You can have this one or else if you want I've got some others back in the cupboard, some other choices. And we found that the middle class respondents, the independent, they wanted to, they said let me see those others. They wanted to choose one for themselves. The working class um, participants very happily took the pen and said thank you. They didn't have to go choose one because in a working class context people don't get to have so many choices. The choices aren't often among very good alternatives. Choice Making the wrong choice has a lot of consequences, sometimes negative consequences, and it isn't freighted with expressing my my individual unique self the, the way it is in middle class context where everything you do is a choice. We um, uh, got Stanford students, we just told them Okay, write down every um, every choice you made since you got up this morning. And so we find that the middle class write down twice as many choices by one o'clock as the working class students. And you know, what, what is that? 
and it's because if you are grow up in a middle class context everything guides you to thinking about all your behavior as choice thank you very much It is great to be able to say that you are not so smart as part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You should go over to boingboing.net and check out their other great podcasts. One that you will probably like is called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And it is put together by three really cool people. They're cartoonists and illustrators. Jim Rugg is a Pittsburgh-based comic book artist, uh, graphic designer. He makes zines. He's a writer. He's uh, done stuff for Aphrodisiac, The Plain Jane, Street Angel. Uh, Jason Lex is a designer illustrator from Pittsburgh. He works, is working currently on a graphic novel and Ed Piscor is a cartoonist who drew the comic WYSIWYG. He also draws brain rot, hip hop family tree. And, um, these guys get together and they have other artists come on all the time who, um, they're famous artists from comic books. They're maybe artists you haven't heard of before, but now that you've heard about them, you have to find out everything that they, Hey, um, like, Bone. Have you ever heard of Bone? It was a really interesting comic book in the 1990s. Jeff Smith, writer, artist, publisher of Bone. He was on an episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Basically, if you're interested in artists, writers, filmmakers, and any other creative people who uh, really get in there and and create things from raw original ideas, and you want to know more about the, the business itself, this is a podcast you should be checking out. Tell Me Something I Don't Know, one of many awesome podcasts you can find at boingboing.net. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of my first book, You Are Not So Smart, or my second book, You Are Now less dumb. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com and if you are chosen, you will get this wonderful prize and also will post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week's winner is Tamar Levanoni who came up with this crazy thing called cinnamon chocolate cookies and uh, these cookies have a cup of cocoa, three cups of semi-sweet chocolate chips, a quarter cup of cane sugar, vanilla extract, uh, kosher salt, baking powder, six tablespoons of unsalted butter, three eggs, and a whole bunch of ground cinnamon. Now, despite there being a whole bunch of ground cinnamon, these things come out and just look like chocolate. And when you're making them, they just look like chocolate. And basically what you feel like you're doing is taking chocolate, disassembling it into its component uh, molecules, and then reassembling it back into another form. And that form is a round disc-shaped object that we often call cookies or, in the UK, biscuits. This is just the most... It looks, it looks like a little brownie. And uh, I'm going to test this thing out, but uh, um, my instincts tell me that when I taste this, um, it's it's going to be... It's going to be uh, pleasure pain because there's a lot of chocolate in this. Um, and of course you will not hear my smacking. I'm going to go away from the microphone.
pepper spray the truck. Okay. So that one bite is worth, I think, an entire pan of brownies. That was a oh my god, that's so much chocolate. I feel like I just um want want a dare. <laughs> Man, that's not right. That's not right. Like that's that's too decadent. That is uh that's worth uh a month of cookies right there. Tamar. Oh my god. I I feel like the there was a uh some sort of um misprint in the email that you sent me tomorrow because that's clearly too much chocolate. That's just too much. Um wow. Okay, I need to use this energy while it's while it's uh, being transported into my blood vessels. Uh let's talk about some psychology news. This is a really really cool study. I'm reading about this study from an article written about the study in the New York Times. And the headline for the article, which appeared on October 3rd, 2013, in the New York Times, reads, For better social skills, scientists recommend a little checkoff. So uh, this study was, uh, there were five uh, elements of the study, and I think there were about a thousand participants. And uh, it was published in the journal Science, and the researchers discovered that when people read popular fiction like... Um, Danielle Steele versus reading uh, stuff by Chekhov or Alice Munro uh, that the people who read the um, literary fiction as opposed to popular fiction this is what the New York Times is, is explaining um, they perform better on tests uh, that measure things like emotional intelligence or um, empathy so basically uh, altogether uh, social perception as the New York Times puts it and that means that when you're trying to read another person's um, inner life, when you're trying to understand uh, how what another person may be thinking, the, your theory of mind, as they say in psychology, is bolstered by reading really complex um, literary fiction. So if you want to um, have more empathetic responses, be able to read faces better, then you need to read words that come from people like Dostoevsky or... Um, Jane Austen or um, Charles Dickens, that sort of thing, or uh, I would I would presume modern equivalents, even though that's not in this study. And you want to stray away from the fast-paced thrillers and throwaway uh, crime and um, lawyer fiction that goes around. Uh, all that stuff is fun and great and nourishes you in different ways. Apparently, reading literary fiction, at least according to this study. The research uh, and the evidence suggests that that gives you more power to empathize and understand what other people are thinking on the inside and read their emotions, thoughts, and feelings just from their body language and their faces. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about on this podcast at youarenotsosmart.com. I tweet at David McRaney. You can also find You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. You can email me at david at youarenotsosmart.com and send those cookie recipes to that address. You can find more information about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find merchandise there like shirts and mugs. And uh, if you want to find more great podcasts, go to boingboing.net where you can find my podcast and many others. Thank you so much for coming. And one last thing everyone always asks, the song at the beginning is 
Clash by Caravan Palace. I'm your Huckleberry. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.